welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam, hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. We click. With questions and participants from all around the world. Anthony Edwards! Put that on a poster! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Back is I missed this shot, I walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get The Athletic for $1 a month for six months. It's time to do it. we got the playing tournament just around the corner. We've got NBA mock drafts going up all over the place. It's, it's time. It's time to give us your $1 a month for six months. And be sure to use theathletic.com slash NBA show to get that done. With me, as always, is my good friend Alex Spears. And Alex, tell us what happened in the NBA this week. Well, Andrew, it all started last Friday night with a matchup between Dallas and Minnesota. Two Western Conference teams fighting for playoff position. The Wolves got the much-needed 116-95 win over Dallas. Their only win in their last five games, a brutal stretch that has included games against Dallas, Phoenix, Dallas again, Boston, and Toronto. Things do lighten up for the Wolves, but it's looking like they will be the seventh seed, now three games back of Denver. The Wolves, who have a six-game lead over the eighth seed, a nine-and-a-half game lead over the ninth seed, and an 11-and-a-half game lead over the tenth seed, will still have to win at least one game in the play-in and now face the prospect of going up against a Clippers team that all of a sudden doesn't look that different from last year's Western Conference Finals team. On Saturday, the Grizz beat the Bucks in Memphis 127-102, John Morant was out, but it once again did not matter because the Grizzlies have DeAnthony Melton, who over his last six games is averaging 20 and 5 while shooting almost 60% from three on eight and a half attempts per game. Woo! Wow! Uh, the Grizzlies have won all six of those games. They're now comfortably in the two spot in the West and will face the winner of the Wolves Clippers playing game in the first round. On Sunday, our favorite team, the Lakers of Los Angeles, got up 23 points on the Pelicans in a game with massive playoff implications. Unfortunately for the Lakers, it was Brandon Ingram's first game back after a 10-game absence, and he looked great against his former team, scoring 26 in what ended up being a 116-108 win over the Lakers. After another win against Portland, the Pelicans now have a two-game cushion on the 10th seed which as of Friday afternoon is the San Antonio Spurs, who still have two games left against Portland. The Lakers, who may be getting AD back for Friday's matchup against New Orleans, now need to win one more game than the Spurs to make it into the play-in, which likely means winning at least three of the remaining six games and possibly more, depending on how the Spurs play. On Monday morning, we learned that Robert Williams III has a torn meniscus in his left knee. Time Lord had surgery on Wednesday and ex is expected to miss four to six weeks. Best case scenario, he would be returning in the second round of the playoffs. After the injury, Boston lost two straight games for the first time since the middle of January. But despite those losses, Boston remains third in the East and only two games back of Miami for the number one spot. On Tuesday, it was the first of two massive games for the Bucks against fellow Eastern Conference contenders. First on Tuesday, it was Bucks Sixers, Giannis first Embiid. With nine seconds left and the Sixers down two, James Harden went for a step back three over Brook Lopez. The ball bounced off the backboard straight into the arms of Embiid, who immediately went back up for the layup. The game is heading to overtime. 
in a world where Giannis Antetokounmpo does not exist. Unfortunately for the Sixers, Giannis is very, very real, and he came from the other side of the basket to block Embiid's shot, helping to secure the 118-116 win for the Bucks. Also on Tuesday, Paul George is back, and he looks really good. He scored 34 points in his first game back against the Jazz, and uh, oh, by the way, there's Kawhi on the sidelines at the Clips-Bulls game. What are the Clippers? What are the Clippers up to, Andrew? Are they, I don't know. I'm very scared. Are, I'd be very scared if I were in the West. Are they about to upend the West playoffs? Is Kawhi coming back? What are they plotting over there, Andrew? <laughs> uh, on Wednesday night, Golden State, who has had one win since Steph Curry went down, took the best team in the league. The distance coming up just short in a 107 to 103 loss to the Suns. The Warriors have now lost seven of eight, but did look impressive against Phoenix, and no one more impressive than Jordan Poole, who had 38, 9, and 7 in the game. Since Steph went down, Jordan Poole is averaging 28, 5, and 6, while shooting 39% from three on over 11 attempts per game. The Suns, meanwhile, uh, they're very good. They're working out immediately after games, in Nike slides, getting swole, videotaping it, which is cool, I guess. Uh, personally, seems like an ideal time to chill, you know, get in the chill zone, relax a little, mm -hmm. listen to the uh, lo-fi beats to study to playlist on Spotify, maybe watch a 25-minute YouTube video <laughs> of a guy who bought a lobster at the grocery store and made it his pet. You know, the chill zone. Maybe the sun should chill out a little bit. Finally, on Thursday night, we got a classic. Bucks Nets, Giannis versus KD. The Bucks were down by nine with three minutes left. Chris Middleton had already been ejected earlier for a flagrant foul, but it did not matter. The Bucks came back and with 18 seconds left, Giannis not only hit a step back three to tie the game, but also became the Bucks all-time leading scorer, passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. KD missed the game winner in regulation. We went into overtime where Giannis hit the game winning free throws with three seconds left to give the Bucks the 120 to 119 win. Matt Moore tweeted out on Friday that since Monday, Giannis's odds for MVP have gone from plus 1,000 to plus 650. Interestingly, next week brings three nationally televised games for Giannis, Dallas on ABC, Chicago on ESPN, and Boston on TNT. It's starting to feel like another big week from Giannis combined with three national games could help Giannis break the MVP race wide open, Andrew. What a week it was. It does feel like Giannis is just wedging himself in there. There was like the Embiid Jokic, and he's wedging himself in there, and he's standing out. He he is in the biggest moments, especially to do against Durant, who a lot of people have thought Kevin's been the best player. And last night, he did not look like the best player on the court last night. It clearly looked like Giannis. It was incredible. I mean, the, the step back three, just the development of Giannis over these last few years. He's basically answered any criticism you could possibly have of him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Al, conventional wisdom says to finish strong. But do you think that's true when it comes to the NBA? Is it the teams that finish strong that set themselves up best for the playoffs? Al, I took a look at the past decade of NBA basketball and how the post-All-Star break records correlate with making the conference finals or winning it all. So first, let's take a look at the top five records post-All-Star break right now. We have Phoenix number one, Boston number two, Memphis three, Milwaukee four, and Dallas five. And, you know, it wouldn't be insane to pick Suns Grizzlies and Celtics Bucks in the East and West finals. But let's take a look at what the last decade tells us about what's happened. 
Uh, let's let's take a quick peek at last year and see if the top five mattered at all. You know who was number three in record post All Star break? The team that everyone thought it was such a shocker that they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Oh, the Atlanta, Atlanta Hawks. Hawks. Yes, the Atlanta Hawks were actually in the top five last year post All Star break. Um, as were the Suns, who had the best record post All Star break, seventy three percent win percentage. And then you had the Bucks and Clippers, who were both in the top 10 as well. The Clippers were 7th with 67% win percentage, and then the Bucks were 66%. So looking pretty good there. So let's take a look at the, the best win percentage, or let's take a look at uh, the win percentage for the teams that have won it all. So it's happened four out of the last 10 times that the team with the best win percentage post-All-Star break has won the whole thing. The 2017 Warriors, the 2015 Warriors, the 2014 Spurs, and the 2013 Heat. And who did you say These was all number just one this, this season? Phoenix mm. is number one in win percentage currently. Did you see that? Uh, there, there, uh, did you see the the guy uh, on Twitter who who was comparing the 2014 Spurs to this year's Suns team and like how similar they are statistically, like kind of across the board, like in terms of net rating and all these things? It's interesting, interesting that they were one of those yeah. teams. Yeah, they had an almost an eighty three percent win percentage wow. post All Star break. That's one. Of, that's one of the best post All Star break. Actually, the twenty thirteen Heat had the best a ninety three percent win percentage Lord. post All Star break. They were just absolutely crushing to the rest of the league. Uh, so those teams were insanely dominant. The average win percentage post All Star break for the for an NBA champion is seventy percent. So if you want to win it all, you, you typically have to be around that number, which includes all of the top five teams right now. Celtics, Suns, Grizzlies, Bucks, and Mavs all have 70% or better. Uh, the other thing that I found, Al, is that there has not been a season in the past 10 years where all the conference finalists came from the top five teams and win percentage post-All-Star break. We've gotten close a couple times in 2017. The Celtics, Warriors, and Spurs all had top five win percentages post-All-Star break. But the other team that got there was the Cavs, who were under 500 post-All-Star break. Also in 2015, the Cavs, Warriors, and Rockets were there, and the Hawks had the ninth uh, best win percentage post-All-Star break. Now, let's take a look at how bad is too bad. Because there's some bad teams. I mentioned the under 500 Cavs. There's some other bad teams that have at least gotten to the conference finals. So the team with the lowest win percentage post All-Star break to win the whole thing out was the 2018 Warriors, who had a 58% win percentage. They went 14 and 10 over their last 28. But they had what you need to get there, and that's insane star power with what they had on their team with Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. Like you you could find a way. Uh, but what about the worst to get to the conference finals? The the Miami Heat in 2020 had a 47% win percentage. And the Nuggets that same season, the bubble year, had a 44% win percentage post-All-Star break. Mm. Which includes like a piece of March and then right. what happened in the bubble. So, But you honestly, after looking at all this... You have to completely throw out the bubble. Like people keep saying that, but like the more I see what happened there, the more I'm convinced that it is very much an anomaly. Um, so what about a real season? 
that Cavs team that went under 500 went 13 and 16 <laughs> over their last 29 games that I mentioned earlier. I feel like every stat uh, the, where a playoff team, like an eventual champion, was terrible, it's always a LeBron team. Like anytime a team was always terrible in the regular season, it's always LeBron. It's about star power. And that's that's one thing that I continually saw looking at all this, that star power can cover up a lot of bad things that are going on with your team. The average conference finalist over the last decade finished with the sixth best record post-All-Star break, which is about 60% win percentage. Um, so that would include a team like Philly, who's just above 60%. So history says don't bury them quite yet. But a few teams that would be more of an exception to the rule are Utah and Brooklyn. And now Brooklyn has what we've discussed almost this whole time is like they've got star power. They've got Durant. They've got Kyrie. They have what it takes to overcome this. Utah, on the other hand, um, I don't think so. There's not really a case for Utah to even be a team that makes the conference finals at this point with the record they currently have post-All-Star break. So, Al, does it matter how you finish? I think the answer is yes. Unless you're a team that has a top five player in the league, it really does matter how you finish. You have to at least finish within like the top six post-All-Star break to show signs that you are heading toward a conference finalist or to being in the NBA Finals. So more bad news for the Jazz. More bad news <laughs> after a dunker junk <laughs> that left you feeling unsatisfied. <laughs> the Jazz really need to turn it on if they want to be a team that that resembles a past conference finalist. Well, they, they were a great team for last week's dunker junk because they were very up in the air, although it feels less up in the air <laughs> now a week later. Uh, but right. another team you mentioned that is also feeling very up in the air, especially after they lost to the Pistons is the uh, Philadelphia yeah. 76ers. And it is time, Andrew, yep. for the fourth installment of Dunk or Junk. Dunk or Junk. Dunk or Junk. The ongoing series where I look at an argument against a playoff team, try my best to debunk it, and then we decide whether the original argument is a slam dunk or whether we can throw it in the garbage. Because it's junk. Now, we've looked at Memphis' half-court offense, the Bulls' inability to beat good teams, and last week looked at the Jazz's inability to defend against small ball. But today, it might be my biggest test yet, Andrew, uh, because this week's dunker junk is as much of an emotional argument as it is a factual argument. It's an argument NBA fans hold very dear to their hearts. It's an argument that has become a key part of the current mythos of the NBA, and as a result, it's, it's larger than life, Andrew. It's a way of life, this argument. Uh, but is it a slam dunk? Now, the team, as I mentioned, the Philadelphia 76ers, the argument, James Harden has a history of coming up small in the biggest playoff moments of his career, and therefore, the Sixers aren't really a contender. Because if you can't trust James Harden, how can you trust the Sixers? Right? Hmm. Heard this one, Andrew. It's a good question. <laughs> I hear it every, every day. I feel like I hear it every single day. I feel, feel like I hear it multiple times per day. Uh, now, everyone knows the story here, so I'm not going to go into a ton of depth detailing Harden's playoff failures. Uh, it feels like at this point, Zach Lowe or Bill Simmons do an annual podcast going through all the bad Harden playoff <laughs> games one by one. Uh, in fact, in the most recent version of this podcast, Zach Lowe said, quote, I did the deep dive. Harden's fourth quarter numbers in big games, in elimination games, in 2-2 series games are bad. His crunch time numbers yeah. are bad. Most of his playoff games are 
or most of his good playoff games are when his team is up 3-0, down 3-0, up 3-1, down 3-1. His postseason resume is justifiably defined by meltdowns. The criticism of his postseason performance is not unfair. It's not cherry-picking. That was what Zach Lowe said just a few weeks ago. And frankly, it's hard to disagree with that. And I'm not going to try to tell you James Harden has been great in the playoffs. You're just not paying attention. Watch the games. He's been great. <laughs> um, especially because so many of Harden's playoff flameouts have been some of the most memorable playoff moments in recent memory. Like each one builds on the one that came before it, making the next oh, one yeah. feel even bigger, more memorable. But the question is, does it matter for this season's Sixers? And the first point I'd like to make is that James Harden is not the first player in the NBA to have one of these seemingly definitive narratives attached to him. We create these narratives about players, about coaches, about teams. We convince ourselves that what we've seen in the past is 100% predictive of what will happen in the future. And even though we are proven wrong over and over again, we continue to feel as confident as ever about the stories we tell ourselves. Just last season, what were some of the stories we told ourselves going into the playoffs. Well, Coach Bud, he can't adjust in the playoffs. You're never going to win oh, with yeah. Coach Bud as your coach. He can't do it until he did, and the Bucks won a title. Paul George? Oh, 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 oh you mean Pandemic P? Uh, that dude always <laughs> collapses in the playoffs until he didn't and took the Clippers to their first conference finals in franchise history. Chris Paul? Hey, he's a great player, but he always chokes in the playoff. A Chris Paul team is never going to go far until he dropped 41 points in a closeout game six against the Clippers to help the Suns become the first team in NBA history to make the finals after missing the playoffs the 10 previous seasons. All of these little stories we told ourselves, and after one playoff season, they were all obliterated one by one. And that's just in one season. The point is we can't be trusted with this stuff. We treat these narratives like they are the final word on a player or a coach or a team. And then when we're proven wrong, we just fall back on some other narrative that hasn't been proven false yet. So I want to take you back to May 3rd, 2007. The 67-win Mavs, featuring that season's MVP, Dirk Nowitzki, were down 3-2 in a first-round series to the 8-seed Warriors. Game 6, yeah. Oracle. Dirk comes out in that game and shoots 2 of 13 from the field, took 4 free throws, scored eight points total. The Mavs lost and were bounced from the playoffs. First of all, there's a great secret base mini doc on YouTube about this game and its aftermath, so go check that out. Second, that performance by Dirk is arguably worse than any single James Harden playoff performance. And that performance, mm. in combination with what happened in the finals in 2006, led many to completely write off Dirk as a championship caliber player. Younger listeners may not remember, but the takes on Dirk around this time, like 2007 to 2010, were wild, okay? I went searching for some of those takes, and boy, oh boy, did I find some. Now, I'm going <laughs> I'm to start with uh, Bill Simmons, who wrote this about Dirk before Game 5 of that Mavs Warriors series. This is in 2007. He said, quote, Takeaway is scoring, and there's not a lot left. Yeah, he'll grab some rebounds and create a couple of easy shots for teammates, but he's not putting his imprint on the game. When Kobe's team loses a playoff game, you still know he's there. Same for Nash, same for Wade, same for Duncan, same for LeBron. Teams can turn Dirk into a complimentary player if they try hard enough. Does that sound like an MVP? Didn't think so. That was from Bill Simmons. That was in 2007. This next one is from 2009. Now, I'm not going to say who wrote this because this is a rough take. 
and there's no need to pile on. Okay, listen, we've 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 all had bad takes. I thought I thought Cole Aldrich was the next Al Horford. Okay, we've had bad takes. So I'm not going to say you wrote this. What I will tell you is that I did not find this take on some random sports blog. Okay, yeah. Quote: Dirk could win it. This is in 2009. Okay, we're two years past the Warriors series. Dirk could win a championship if he was willing to come off the bench or play second fiddle to a real champion. The problem is that his greatest asset is his offense, and that means he ends up being, quote, the man. The perfect role for Dirk is a Tony Kukoc-type role, a gifted offensive player off the bench that creates instant matchup problems. Only, to be honest, Kukoc was a better all-around player. On a lesser but very good team, (laughs) Kukoc would have been the man, like on the Mavs. In the meantime, or until Dirk finds that role before he's too old, we'll enjoy a fun Mavs team that always wins but never transcends. That is a small glimpse into how Dirk was viewed prior to the 2011 yeah. playoffs. And a lot of us bought into that narrative. Maybe not the Kukoc narrative, but the general narrative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't think he was a bench player. But, right. know, yeah, that, that was ridiculous, but it was just fun to share. Uh, we, we bought into that narrative, though, and it sounded true. It sounded definitive. Like, we had proof. Until, of course, Dirk led the Mavs to a championship over LeBron's heat in six games. Then all of a sudden, we had to rewrite our story about Dirk. And it took Dirk until he was 32 years old, which happens to be the same age James Harden is this season, to force us to rewrite that story. The point is, all of these stories are true until they're not. And we can at least acknowledge that we're generally pretty bad when trying to create these definitive narratives around great players. Now, I said I wasn't going to try and disprove James Harden's individual playoff failures, but I do think it's important to add a little bit of context. Since being traded to the Rockets before the 2012-13 season, James Harden has played 10 seasons of NBA basketball. In eight of those 10 seasons, Harden played at least 2,400 minutes. The only other player to have that many high-minute seasons during that span is Damian Lillard. Bump it up to seasons with at least 2,700 minutes played? Harden did that in six of those 10 seasons. He's all alone at the Mm. top of the league. Only three players... Paul George, LeBron, and Kemba had five seasons like that. Everyone else, including Dame, had four or less. Bump it up to 2,900 minutes played? Harden did that in four of those 10 seasons. Again, all alone at the top of the league. You combine his heavy minutes with a usage that was usually near the top of the league in those seasons, and you can easily make the argument that James Harden had the heaviest burden of any superstar over the last 10 years. Now, does that excuse his playoff flameouts? No, But it's worth mentioning that those memorable playoff failures all came within a context where James Harden was routinely being asked to do more than any other superstar in the league. And that's just not the case this season. Harden's total minutes are down this season. And while he is obviously still critical to the Sixers' success, he's not going to be plan A every single trip down the court as he often was in Houston. He has Embiid, another superstar who is there to share that burden. And you can't overstate how great of a player Embiid is in comparison to some of Harden's past teammates. Looking back at Harden's past partnerships, this may be the best situation he's ever been in because Harden never really got to play with KD in Brooklyn. You know, Chris Paul was great his first year in Houston, but he missed time. He didn't make the All-Star game. Westbrook obviously had a roller coaster season his year in Houston. Dwight Howard was also very good in his first year in Houston, but wasn't anywhere near Embiid's level. Harden's played with great players, absolutely. But since going to Houston, this season's version of Embiid might be the best partnership he's ever had outside of a KD partnership that never really got off the ground in Brooklyn. 
So I'm not asking you to ignore Harden's past playoff failures. They're real. They happen. But we can acknowledge that, A, looking back through NBA history, popular narratives about superstar players are routinely proven wrong. And B, the context in which Harden's playoff failures occurred is very different than his current situation in Philly. So the argument is, Andrew, Harden's past playoff failures mean the Sixers cannot win big in the playoffs. Is that a slam dunk or is it junk? Dunk or junk, Andrew? Oh, man. It's a tough one. It is a really tough one. Also, you have to throw in just how poorly he's played recently, too. And like what he looks like today. And it's concerning. And the way the team looks, it's it's concerning. And there's to me, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. If you want to be optimistic, there's a ton of reasons to be pessimistic. If you want to be pessimistic. However, I'm gonna say it's junk. Wow. I think that they I I think that they, with the star power they have, are going to have a shot in the East. I, I honestly thought that the Celtics were going to have a chance to like really run through the East and match up with the Bucks, yeah. and that they would. But without Robert Williams, or even knowing what Robert Williams will look like post injury, like there's a lot of questions with them. And so, who's going to be the other team? You know, that's the question, right? Yeah. Is is Brooklyn gonna even gonna gonna get out of the first round? Like I don't know. Uh, also, like, what does the does he have to win the title? Does he have to get to the NBA Finals? Like, what is what does success look like? You know, if it's conference finals, like, yeah, I think they can do that. If it's NBA Finals, I think getting past Giannis is gonna be really tough. It will be, and I, I think as just a a starting point, like whenever they get to a closeout game how does James Harden perform? Because that's what we often look back at yeah. when we're talking about his playoff resume. And honestly, like right now, if you're looking for an argument against the Sixers, I find the Doc Rivers argument much more compelling than the James Harden yeah. argument. That's another thing. That's another thing. And I get it. Like combining those two, it's like, well, I'll just take my shot. One of them will come through for me and the Sixers right. will fail in the playoffs. Yeah. But yeah, like likely if you're betting against the Sixers, there's a there's enough there to get there. But however, like you said, like there, it happens, it happens, you know, throughout the history of the NBA, guys prove us wrong. It happens, and the star power of Embiid and Harden, like they've got whatever they have, what's necessary, and what like history has shown us, they have what's necessary to get there. Right. Right. Yeah, so I, I would agree. I, I'm kind of leaning on the side of junk, acknowledging that it exists, but open to the possibility that it is not like a definitive thing, that, that James Harden could perform better in the playoffs. doesn't seem ridiculous yeah. to me. Uh, someone else that needs to perform better is the Los Angeles Lakers, and we're going to talk about them right after this quick break. All right, Andrew. It is time for the Wheel of Fandom, our weekly segment where each week we spin a digital wheel. It lands on a random NBA team, and we become fans of that team for the next week. This week, the wheel blessed us with the Los Angeles Lakers. It was a critical week for the Lakers, and things did not go well. Three road losses at New Orleans, at Dallas, and at Utah. Those losses now have the Lakers sitting in the 11th spot in the West, needing to win one more game than the Spurs the rest of the way to make the plan. The one glimmer of hope is that Anthony Davis, who has been out since the middle of February, is likely going to play in Friday night's big game against the Pelicans. Andrew, if, our, if the Lakers are our team this week, who is our guest? Ooh-wee, it's Trevor Lane, 
host of the Lakers Nation podcast, which is also on YouTube. Go check it out. Trevor, how's it going, man? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me. The the wheel blessed you by landing on the Lakers. Some might say cursed you. <laughs> it's that's the kind of season it's been for, for the Lakers. Yeah. But, well, but welcome aboard anyway. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, let's start by putting this Lakers season in the proper context. Uh, you've been a Lakers fan for a long time. You've lived through a lot of Lakers seasons. Where does the season rank from like perspective, like the worst Lakers season that you've experienced as a fan? It, it's the worst. It's it's the worst for sure. The worst season that we've seen um, in a long, long time for the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, yeah, I think it's at the bottom. And look, I, I think that, that that's the sentiment that I've been getting from Lakers fans. And I think it's accurate when you factor in the expectations coming into the season. We've seen fewer wins. We've seen 17 win seasons and things of that nature. But the Lakers this season were expected to be. They were the betting favorite to come out of the Western Conference. And yet here they are struggling to get into the play-in tournament, not into the playoffs, into the play-in tournament. And so that has made this, combined with the lethargic performances we've seen from the team, the relentless injuries, and the fact that this has all largely been self-inflicted, it's all added up to a, a nightmare of a season. So the reports are that Anthony Davis and LeBron will likely play in Friday's game against the Pelicans. How confident are you in this team's ability to get into the play-in if AD and LeBron come back? And are the Lakers fans even excited about the prospect of being in the play-in? I think they certainly can do it if those guys are back and if they're healthy enough to make an impact. We know they're not going to be 100%. They can do it, but they've got to win more than the Spurs, essentially, in order to get in. If they tie, they both win the same amount of games from here on out, then the Spurs get in because they have the tiebreakers. That's a tough spot to be in. Again, I think they can pull that off, but do Lakers fans even want that? I've had a lot of Lakers fans telling me, no, we'd rather this team just go away as soon as possible. Let's fast forward, jump in the DeLorean, get up to 88 miles per hour and find July 1st and then move on. Um, But that's, you know, that's been the sentiment of some Lakers fans. I don't agree. I I'm of the mindset of you fight all the way through. You fight hard. If you can make it great and then see what can happen from there. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a tough one for Lakers fans for sure. And there are a lot of fans that are ready to see this team kind of ride off into the sunset and, and look ahead to next season. So if we were trying to spin something positive about the mm-hmm. season, what are a couple silver linings Lakers fans can take away from this season? Yeah, I mean, it's not all all doom and gloom, right? When you look at this franchise and what they've done over the recent years, of course, there's been the focus on stars, but they've also developed a reputation as a team that does a really nice job finding players late in the draft or even undrafted players. And we've certainly seen that with some of the guys that they found this season that have managed to make contributions to the team. We can talk certainly first and foremost about Austin Reeves, who went undrafted last year, and he's become a rotation player for the Lakers, another guy that they have found. Then you go and you look at a guy like Malik Monk, who was not undrafted or anything like that, but didn't have a lot of opportunities out there on the market, a fairly young player. The Lakers were able to get him, rehabilitate his value. Is he going to be with the team next season? We'll see. He's probably earned himself a big payday. But then Stanley Johnson, Wenyan Gabriel, other guys that have come in and made contributions for the Lakers, they've managed to find talent kind of deep down, digging it to, uh, near the bottom of the barrel. And uh, and their ability to do that is really important when you're a team that is so top-heavy contractually with LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook. So moving forward, their ability to identify talent, I think, is a, is a silver lining in terms of finding those rotation players for, for minimal cost. 
Speaking of Malik Monk, what do you think his market will be like this summer? Like, what are you expecting in terms of contract for him? It's going to be a really interesting offseason because there's not a lot of cap space out there, but there's also not a lot out there in terms of free agents that teams are really going to go after. I mm-hmm. think he's going to be a guy that's probably going to wind up somewhere right around that mid-level exception of about $10 million, which unless the Lakers do something drastic with Russell Westbrook, and maybe they do, would probably take the Lakers out of the running. But I could see him in that $10 million range. It feels like he's got that very locked-in skill set. of He's the microwave scorer off the bench that a lot of teams would want to have, and he's been great this season. So there's been a lot of individual disappointments for the Lakers this season. I don't know why I'm like the wet blanket like every time that we get a question, but I am. Um, and one of the one of the biggest ones has been Taylor Horton Tucker. Uh, THT is still only 21, but his development seems to have stalled this season. Um, where are you right now with THT, and how much has his stalled develop? How much do you think his development has stalled, and do you think it's just a result of a bad fit, perhaps? I think that's definitely a factor. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't put together a worse fit on the floor for Taylor Horton Tucker than Russell Westbrook because they have similar weaknesses in terms of the outside shot. Both prefer to get to the rim. Both can be questionable on the defensive end of the floor. So that can magnify THT's own issues. But the Lakers also came in promoting Taylor Horton Tucker, their words, not mine, as their new wing stopper. He was going to be the guy that was going to defend the other team's best player, and he's proven incapable of doing that this season. And you can argue that maybe maybe some that's on the Lakers for suggesting that. That might be asking a bit much of a 21-year-old player. We also have to mention that he did tear a ligament in the thumb of his shooting hand in preseason. That kept him out for a few months of the season. He had done a lot of work on his outside shot during the offseason, but it looks as though a lot of that was undone by that injury. So I'm still hopeful that there's upside here moving forward. 6'4 with a ridiculous 7'1 wingspan. He's got the physical profile. He's got the skill set that could make him intriguing, but he still has to put it all together. Plenty of time to do it because he's a young player, but this is a Lakers team that really needed him to win right now and really start to figure things out this season. And if anything, he's probably regressed. So there's a lot of people that are sour on him in Lakers nation. I think that he's still got potential and still got upside. But this has definitely not been a great season for him. So Eric Pincus, he wrote a great article this week for Bleacher Report, kind of detailing the decisions that have led to the Lakers' current situation. I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners, because this was the first time I really understood this, could you explain the mistake the Lakers made with THT's contract and how history could be repeating itself with Austin Reeves? Sure. So so the Lakers, what they could have done if they had freed up just a little bit more money is they could have offered THT a third year on his deal if they'd used some cap space to, to do that. And they didn't. And they didn't. Instead, they decided to offer him that two-year deal, which ultimately made him a free agent one year earlier. And then we saw the same thing with Austin Reeves. Had they freed up a little bit more room with the deal that they gave Kendrick Nunn, which Kendrick Nunn lost for the season, didn't play a single game as it turned out. Um, they had paid him even, I believe it was about $50,000 less than the Lakers could have given Austin Reeves wow. a third year <laughs> Which which makes I know it's it's crazy would would make a huge difference. You're just you're adding on another year of team control. Now you can argue would Austin Reeves had had simply agreed to that and said sure no problem. He did have other opportunities to be drafted and things of that nature, and he turned those down in order to get to the Lakers. You can also question Taylor Horton Tucker with Clutch Sports. Would that have been a factor? Would Clutch Sports have said no? Come on, just give him a two year yeah. deal. Let him hit free agency sooner. Maybe that's part of the argument that needs to be mentioned, but ultimately, yes, the Lakers could have, at least legally, made those three-year deals 
and then turn that into a situation where they have them under team control for a little bit longer before they have to be paid. Those sorts of things uh, matter when you've got a team that's as top heavy as the Lakers are. Yeah, that was such a super interesting detail because I just, mm-hmm. it, from the outside, it seems like such a small decision. But then you're seeing the ripple of effects of this like a few years later. And the thing with THT, how like if he did get traded to another team and he does perform well, well, now he's a free agent at mm-hmm. the end of next season. Um, all, all those tiny decisions just add up over time. Absolutely. That's going to be one of the big themes coming into this offseason is what they do with Taylor Horton Tucker and his contract. And how do other teams perceive that? Is it a lose-lose situation where if he goes and he doesn't show that development that you're hoping for, well, then he just picks up his player option and then you're paying a guy $11 million or so that maybe isn't worth it. On the flip side, if he really hits and he realizes that potential, well, guess what? Then he opts out and then you're going to have to pay him more or you might lose him. And so it could be a lose-lose situation if uh, other teams are looking at it that way. That could impact his trade value. So looking ahead to the summer, what do you see as like the top two or three priorities for the Lakers? I think number one, the first thing they've got to figure out is what are they doing with Russell Westbrook? Is it a yeah. wave and stretch scenario where you're going to eat 15-ish, almost $16 million in dead money on your books for the next three seasons in order to free up some cap room, which would in theory maybe allow you to hang on to Malik Monk? It might allow you to use that full mid-level exception rather than being resigned to using the taxpayer mid-level. That full mid-level exception would trigger a hard cap. And so that's the reason why the Lakers probably won't be able to use it this offseason, but if you were to wave and stretch Russ, is that is that worth it? Having that dead money on your books? Or do you find a trade? And that's what we've heard is going to be more their priority is looking at the trade option first. And then what does it take to move him? Do we start to hear the John Wall rumors again? Is there another landing spot for him? And what are the Lakers attached to Russell Westbrook in order to make that happen? I think everything else will be a domino effect off of that decision. Um, I suppose it is still possible that they decide, you know what, we'll just ride out the remaining $47 million on the contract and we'll bring him back yeah. next year. But everything we've heard is that he would like to move on and the Lakers would like to move on from him. So I think they try to find some way to make that work. Then from there, I think the next big decision is Malik Monk. Can you find a way to hang on to him? He said great things about staying with the organization. But financially, can you make that happen? If another team is offering the $10 plus million that I was projecting, and the Lakers can only offer a little short of six million as a taxpayer mid-level exception. That's a big gap to try to try to make up. As much as he likes playing for the Lakers, that's a lot to ask. So that maybe doesn't get it done, and then you could lose him. And then from there, it's about figuring out how you how you really build this team into a contender again. If you can give LeBron a chance to win a championship. And I think it means going back to the drawing board. I think it means going back to the formula that has always worked with LeBron. And for some reason, we tend to get away from this. But it's you put the ball in LeBron's hands. You surround him with guys who can just do two things, shoot and defend. That's all you need. And then you're in pretty good shape moving forward. Um, They've gone away from that, going after Dennis Schroeder a couple of seasons ago. And now, of course, Russell Westbrook this season. So I think those are the big three priorities for the Lakers this summer in terms of what they're going to move or what they're going to do out of the market. Going back to the uh, what you do with Russ, I wanted to give you credit. I don't know if you came up with this idea, but I was listening to Lakers Nation and you brought up this fake rush trade with Indiana, which honestly was the first time I had heard a rush trade that I didn't immediately hate and think, why would the other team ever do this? It yeah. was Russ and the 27 and 29 first mm-hmm. to Indiana for Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Heald. And the reason I like that trade so much is because Indiana in that trade gets off of about 60 million in future money for two guys who are about to turn 30 years old, 
on a roster that otherwise is super young and they get two first out of it and they could waive Russell Westbrook because it's an expiring at that point or they could play him if they wanted to. But that Mm -hmm. was the first trade I had heard for Russ that actually kind of made sense in my head for both teams. I really like it. I don't know if the Pacers would do it, but I liked it. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. Our colleague uh, Ron Gutterman came up with with that one, and we were looking at at just the Lakers. That's the one thing they can offer with an expiring contract, aside from picks, is they can offer the ability to get off of money a little bit earlier for some teams, and for a Pacers team that's in flux, maybe that's something appealing to him. And of course, there's the one that got away element to Buddy Heald. I mean, the Lakers have been kind of right. chasing him for forever, so I'm sure that was a factor too, as far as why he's uh, he's still on our minds, but. Malcolm Brogdon, if, man, if he can stay healthy, <laughs> it's a big if. He's had trouble with that, but he would be a fantastic fit with uh, with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. So it's an interesting one. I, again, I don't know if the Pacers would go for it, but um, but it'd certainly be something to worth uh, to worth worth taking a look at. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for answering our questions. But it is now time to play Andrew versus the Beat, where Andrew goes head to head with a beat writer for an NBA team. This week, of course, our guest Trevor Lane. Trevor, how this works, I've come up with eight trivia questions all about the Lakers. Uh, Some are easy, some are hard. You're going to give me a number between one and eight. It will correspond to a question. If you get it right, you'll get two points. If you get it wrong, Andrew will have a chance to steal for one. We'll go back and forth until all the questions have been asked and answered. So to start us off, all I need from you is a number between one and eight. Oh, I mean, i got to go with number eight, right? Number eight. (laughs) Let's start there. Oh, and by the way, before I read this question, I wanted to give a shout-out to Jim Phillips on Twitter at at San Francisco Slim. He sent me a trivia question last week that I actually used on the show, and I forgot to give him a shout-out. Uh, so I'm shouting out, Jim, now. Thank you, Jim. Nice. Um, okay. This is this is, a, this is our longest question, <laughs> so get ready. All right. Russell Westbrook has played with 15 different teammates who made at least one All-Star game in their career. We're going to try to name them all. Now, to speed this up, I'm g- going to give you four easy ones, okay? We're not going to say LeBron, AD, Harden, or KD. Okay, Mm -hmm. so there's 11 other players that Russell Westbrook has played with who made at least one All-Star game. So how this works, Trevor, you're going to give me a name. Then Andrew will give me a name. We'll go back and forth until one of you stumbles. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I'll go with uh, Dwight Howard. That is correct. Andrew. Uh, Mello. Carmel Anthony. That is correct. And they only had to make at least one All-Star game, not necessarily when they played with Russ. Okay. Career. Well, Rajon Rondo. That is correct. Andrew. Uh, Paul George. Paul George. Mm. That is correct. Back to Trevor. Uh, let's see. Did Sergi Baca ever make it? Are you asking me? Yeah. Yeah. I'll say Sergi Baca. That is incorrect. Ah. Which means Andrew, you get a point. The other names. Would you believe that there are two names he played with on the Lakers this year? Mm-hmm. DeAndre Jordan and Isaiah yeah. Thomas both made all-star games oh and played God. at least one game with Russell Westbrook. <laughs> That's true. Uh, then you had Br- Bradley Beal. You had Victor Oladipo. Uh, Tyson Chandler, TC, yeah. who oh, was on the Houston Rockets team. Uh, Demonis Sabonis. And then the one I was really wondering if Andrew would get, Karan Butler. Uh, see, oh, I that, always forget that that, that Tyson Chandler one would have been a tough one. I was hoping I could nail the the uh, the Thunder guys there, and I was hoping Serge had made it at some point, but got me on that one. There were definitely there were definitely years when we felt Serge uh, should have made it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Have. Uh, okay, Andrew, <laughs> your turn. Uh, number one. 
Question number one, 89.7% of Wayne Ellington's shots this year have been three-point attempts. Mm-hmm. 89.7. There's only one player in NBA history who has a higher three-point attempt rate while playing at least 500 minutes in a season. This player, who took 91.4% of his shots from three, did so for the Rockets during the 2018-19 season and has since played for four other franchises. Who is this player? Oh, my gosh. The Rockets in 2018-19? 18-19. So I gave you some clues there. He took oh, 91% of his shots from three <laughs> while playing wild. over 500 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's kind of easy to do with James Harden. So like somebody that took corner threes, I would guess. Um, okay. Thinking about past Rockets. Oh, boy. Any Daniel Daniel House? I don't know. Daniel House. That is incorrect. Trevor, any guesses? I'll let you know up front. This is the hardest question. Got a couple that I'm thinking of. Uh, I don't remember if he was with the Rockets that season or not. Try Ben McLemore. That is who I would have guessed. The correct answer, Gary Clark Jr. Oh. That is... (laughs) It's really hard. I know. That's That's a tough one. (laughs) That's why I added in these. He's played for four other franchises. But honestly, I think Ben McElmore has probably done that as well. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So, Trevor, back to you. Only down by one. All right. Uh, I will go with uh, let's go number seven. Okay. Question number seven. The Lakers have used 36 different starting lineups this season. The second most in the NBA. It might be 37 after the last game. It is. I don't remember. It is. Okay. (laughs) Which team is first, having used 41 different starting lineups this season? Oh, well, that's news to me. I thought that the Lakers had the lead for the most. So that's interesting. Okay. So somebody has used 41 different starting lineups. I'd have to imagine it was a team that's been decimated with COVID, had players in and out of the roster. Uh, let's try, oh, they put, they've been putting together a bunch of piecemeal lineups lately. What about the Blazers? The Portland Trailblazers. A very good guess, but incorrect. I think mm. they're at like 34. I went through oh, all of them man. on uh, basketball reference last night. That would have been my guess too. Um, to come up with another one, Andrew. 41 mm. different starting lineups this season. Sheesh. It's not the Thunder, is it? The Oklahoma City Thunder, Andrew. That oh. is incorrect. It is the Brooklyn Nets. That was going to be my second okay. guess. That kind of makes Brooklyn sense. Nets. Yep. Uh, do you guys? And, and if, if our listeners are interested, the team that's used the fewest, it's Phoenix. Makes mm-hmm. sense. They've only used twelve different starting lineups. Wow. Number two, though, Charlotte only used thirteen. Hmm. Interesting. Some huh. information for you. Okay, Andrew, back to you. <laughs> uh, number two. Number two. Okay. This season, the Lakers have had 25 two-man lineups that have played at least 500 minutes together. This Laker appears in five of the top six two-man lineups based on net rating. Hmm. So one of the Lakers, you sort you sort all the two-man lineups by net rating. This guy appears in five of the top six. Who could it be? Uh, Austin Reeves? That is incorrect. Trevor, you have a chance to steal for one point. Oh, 
Austin Reeves was going to be my guess. I know he's been uh, he's been up there. So he appears in most of the the two man. I mean, do we go? I mean, do we just say LeBron James? And go, That's up to you. Yeah, yeah. You I'll like go, go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. LeBron James. I figure that he's he's got to be up there. Is it LeBron James? It is not. Mm. It is Malik Monk. Oh, Malik Monk. That's another good one. Okay, Trevor, it's still 1 0. <laughs> We're doing well here. It's a close battle. It's <laughs> <laughs> hard questions out. <laughs> let's go uh, all right we got to break the pattern then that that's the problem here we got to break the pattern so i'm gonna go i'm gonna <laughs> jump to i'm gonna jump to number four question number four okay here we go i want you to rank these lakers players from most playoff games played to fewest playoff games played oh, so gosh. in their career not necessarily specific to the lakers mm-hmm. kendrick nunn wayne ellington kent Bazemore. Oh, um, Kendrick Dunn, Wayne Ellington, Kent, Kent Bazemore, Bazemore, who has played the most playoff games, who has played the fewest, and who is in the middle. I'm going to go none Bazemore, Ellington. That is incorrect. Ah. Andrew, you have a chance to steal for one point. <sighs> um, <laughs> it's a funny question. Um, Ellington, none, Baysmore. That is also incorrect. <laughs> Would you believe Wayne Ellington? I think uh, I think it's only nine playoff games. Yeah. Okay. Kendrick Nunn only had the one season his rookie year, but they made it to the finals in the bubble, so he played a ton. But yep. he's second. Um, and Kent Baysmore with the Hawks was number one. Mm. The Hawks. All right, we're still looking for our second point. All right, Andrew, where would you like to go next? Uh, I'll go three. And I'm glad you picked this one. Oh, I have a feeling no. Trevor might Trevor might know this one mm, without okay. even asking. So we'll see if Andrew knows. The All Lakers right. are one of only four NBA franchises without a mascot. But that's not because people in the organization didn't try. Once upon a time, Jeannie Buss and Linda Rambis presented Dr. Buss with a plan for a new Lakers mascot. The mascot was a type of animal that was described as, quote, edgy with a mohawk and a piercing. What was the name of the proposed Lakers mascot? Now, I'm going to give you five mascot names Okay. and, and the animal that they are. Okay. One of them is true. Four of them are, I made up. Okay, so here we go. Okay. Slam Duck. He was a duck. Swish the Fish. He was a goldfish. Sammy Skyhook. He was a bald eagle. Dagger the Mountain Lion. Or Alley Oop the Alley Cat, who was a feral cat. So that was Slam Duck, Swish the Fish, Sammy Skyhook, Dagger, or Alley Oop the Alley Cat. I'll go Dagger. Dagger. I, I you know, I tested this question on my wife. That was also what she picked. Dagger the Mountain Lion must be a that's good wrong. mascot yeah, name. It wrong. is wrong. Dang All right, it. Trevor, you have a chance to steal. Uh, <sighs> I will go with Slam Duck. Trevor? That is absolutely correct. All right. This was, uh, it it was from the Showtime book. They revealed this detail and it was Slam Duck, which probably would have been pretty cool. I would love a duck mascot in the NBA. We don't have (laughs) one. Okay, Trevor, you now have tied it up and you have control of the board, which means you can move ahead here. Uh, I will go with number five. Okay, Malik Monk is currently shooting 39% from three Mm -hmm. on over five attempts per game. Did you know 
There are only three other Lakers in franchise history who have shot at least 39% from three on five plus attempts per game. How many can you name? Now I'm going to give you one point per correct answer. So these are Lakers throughout any point of history who shot at least 39% from three on five plus attempts per game over the course of one season. Oh, just one season. Okay. Just one season. <laughs> so you need the volume plus the accuracy. And none of these are like a guy who played two games or something. Right. Let me think about where he's at right now. I know Carmelo Anthony was doing it for a little bit this season. I don't know where he's at at this moment, but I'll go with Carmelo Anthony as one of them. Carmelo Anthony, that actually sounds correct. I am going to look it up, but I believe that is incorrect. I think he may have slipped recently. He was doing it at one point, but it, he's the first name that popped into my head. Let's go look at Carmelo. Carmelo is currently shooting 38%. Ah, I feared he had slipped <laughs> a little bit. He was doing it for a little bit this season. <laughs> All right, Andrew, you have a chance to steal. You potentially steal three points here, which would be very exciting. Oh, boy. Uh, what about KCP? KCP, what a great guess. Wrong, Andrew. Yeah. The three names. Mm -hmm. Jody Meeks. Oh, my gosh. Nick Young. Swaggy P. And, and probably the most impressive because of when it happened back in the mm. '90s, Glenn Rice. I was God. That was wow. that was Glenn my Rice that was the other name that I got to was Glenn Rice. <laughs> if I just wow. got the mellow part. <laughs> okay, now this is now you, people out there might be saying, "Wow, they haven't scored a lot of points." Uh, okay, but this final question, the way it's set up, this mm -hmm. is going to be very exciting, Andrew. Okay, <laughs> so this is the final question. <laughs> LeBron James, in his age 37 season, has 158 three pointers, a career high. Where does LeBron currently rank all time in three-pointers made for the NBA? Now, before you answer, you get to choose who guesses first. So if you want Trevor to guess first, he can guess it, but he might get it exactly. But if he doesn't okay. get exactly, you, you would guess higher or lower, or you could be the first one to guess. So we're talking all-time NBA history, total three-pointers made. Where does LeBron rank? Like what place? You wow. know, 25th or whatever. Um, I'll let Trevor choose. Okay, Trevor, so you are going to give our first guess for where you think LeBron ranks all-time in three-pointers made. Just on longevity and volume, I'm going to say he's sitting, let's go 12th. Okay, Andrew, would you like to go higher or lower? Uh, and that's a also very tell good me, number. And also tell me what you mean by higher or lower. I think he's lower, which means higher than 12. <laughs> so like 13 or higher. 13 or higher, yeah. The correct answer is, and whoever gets this will win the week, LeBron. By, by the way, I'll reveal this. Trevor was off by one. Oh. No. <laughs> off by one. Was it 13 or is he 11th? LeBron James, all-time in three-pointers, is 11th, which means no! Trevor wins the week. <laughs> The final score of two to one. That high scoring game here. High scoring. <laughs> wow. It was that a defensive was... struggle. <laughs> wow. That was very, very good. Uh, Trevor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Go check out the Lakers Nation podcast and their YouTube channel. We appreciate it, man. No problem. Thank you guys so much for having me. All right, Andrew. It is once again time to spin the wheel. And Andrew, this this is going to be the last time we spin the wheel for a little while because we're about to enter the playoffs. Oh Can't be talking about the okay. magic in the first round of the playoffs, right? So this is our last chance to get the magic, is what I'm saying. It's your last chance, Thunder. It's your last chance, Wizards. Last chance for Detroit. 
So we'll see what happens. We're going to spin the wheel. Maybe we'll get one of these tanking teams. It'll be our last chance to get a look at them. Or maybe we'll, there's still a few good teams on here. we got Miami, yeah. you know, Chicago, yeah. the Clippers. Clippers would be kind of interesting. All right, so let's yeah, spin that wheel. Our final wheel last final chance, team Knicks. is going to be... The uh, the Washington Wizards. All right. If anyone if anyone out there thinks that we faked the wheel, that we picked, if you think the wheel is fake, uh, well, strap in because next week we're talking about the Wizards. Uh, before, before this is uh, let, let me see who the, the Wizards are playing. This is jarring. Yeah, I, this is absolutely jarring. When I thought of all the teams we could get, I didn't even uh, think about. I wasn't even thinking about the Wizards. Oh, you know, you got the you got the uh, the zinger narrative. You, the, him and Bradley Beal are developing some chemistry. Oh, hey, we'll this is actually that, pretty sure. good. This is a pretty good lineup. Listen to this. Okay. Okay. All Fra- right. All Friday right. night, Dallas at home, playoff team. Loss. Well, yes, but Sunday at Boston, playoff team. Loss. Correct. Tuesday at Minnesota, playoff team. Loss. And Wednesday at Atlanta, play in team play in team i mean at least at least yeah. those are solid teams they're playing that we'll get a look at they're playing some teams yeah, poor, poor Zingus is doing that's that's happening and you know what we do have a, a loyal wizards fan that listens to our show yes we have one and so at least we get to give him his podcast before the Wizards completely sign off and are gone for a while. And we got to get Josh so. Robbins because the last time we had him on the show was for the Magic. It was. We get to double dip with Josh now. It was one of... Uh, I, I got more text after that episode about how much people just loved yeah. Josh. They just wanted him back on the show. So this is maybe this is a good way to end the regular season. Yeah. Yes. We're going we're gonna to rearrange everything to get Josh Robbins on this show. Uh, all right. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, just like Matt underscore J45 did. He writes, Saturday Slam and Jam, five stars. I look forward every week to the Saturday show. You guys are great. Thank you for the great pods every week, guys. Thank you so much for leaving that review. If you leave a review as well, we'll read it on the show. It would mean a lot to us. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend and enjoy the basketball. And we will talk to you guys again next week.